Today on the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, episode number 214, Stephen Finley, Biko Gray, and Lori Latrice Martin join me to share about their article, Affirming Our Values, African American Scholars, White Virtual Mobs, and the Complicity of White University Administrators. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. On today's episode, I am so honored to have three guests, one of whom I was able to meet at Louisiana State University's Communicating Across the Curriculum Summer Institute, and that is Lori Martin. I'm so glad that she suggested that she could bring her collaborators on this scholarly article and have an important conversation with us today. And I'm just so pleased to have her with us. That's Dr. Lori Latrice Martin. She's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and African and African American Studies at Louisiana State University. She was recently promoted to full professor. Congratulations, Lori. I'm so excited for you about that. Her research areas are race and ethnicity, racial wealth, inequality, and black asset poverty and race and sports. And next up, we have Stephen Finley, who's joining her, Dr. Stephen Finley. He is her colleague and associate professor of religious studies and African and African-American studies and director of the African and African-American studies program at Louisiana State University. And Dr. Finley's primary areas of scholarship are African-American religious cultures, theory and method in the study of religion, and the history of religions as informed by social theory, philosophy of race, and psychoanalysis. And their collaborator over at Syracuse University is Dr. Gray, Dr. Biko M. Gray, and he his work operates at the nexus and interplay between continental philosophy of religion and theories and methods in African-American religion. His research is primarily on the connection between race, subjectivity, religion, and embodiment, exploring how these four categories play on one another in the concrete space of human experience. And Dr. Gray is also interested in the religious implications of social justice movements. He's currently working on a book project that explores how contemporary racial justice movements like Black Lives Matter demonstrate new ways of theorizing the connection between embodiment, religion, and subjectivity. And all of these collaborators not only worked on this article, but are currently working on a book together called The Religion of White Rage. And I'm going to have that in the show notes as the title, but nothing for me to link to yet. But when it does come out, I'll go back and link to that in the show notes, which will be at teachingandhighered.com slash 214. Stephen, Lori, and Biko, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored to be speaking to you and Lori, it was so great meeting you out at LSU and I know we have a lot to talk about today, so I'm just going to get right to it. You outlined your article 
in a very succinct way. We're going to look at the problem. We're going to talk about some of the responses to that problem and then how people are responding. And then we're going to end with a little bit of hope. (laughs) We need it, right? (laughs) So we're going to end with corrective and constructive suggestions on what we might do about this. So let's start out with the problem. Stephen, I know you have some things to share that just really will orient us to the, the challenge that we are facing here. One of the main things that I wanted to do was talk just a little bit about how this article came together and why. Please. Over the past several years, there have been many cases in which African-American scholars in their work, their professional work, their publications, in classrooms, on social media, have published things or said things or written things about the world in which we live from the perspective of African-American scholars. And often these ideas have been critical of race in America and particularly critical about how whiteness functions. And some of this was, was often just sort of basic observations that scholars have made. And yet the response to these, what are often descriptive statements has been quite violent. In other words, there are cases in which scholars have been threatened bodily, have had their schools contacted, threatening to get them fired, threatening to publish where their children go to school and live where their families live and so on. And and this concerned me. On the other hand, you have the university administrators where these faculty work have never really come out and condemned the the violence against these African-American scholars who have been mostly women. And so I wanted to write something about this. And because of my close relationship with Lori and Biko and my respect for them, I asked them if they'd like to put something together that addresses this issue and and gives it some coherence, what it it means and what we can do uh, with respect to it. And Lori, I know that you can familiarize us with many of these cases where where you've seen this happen. There's one from Texas A&M, one from Boston University. I mean, you could actually spend probably the next four hours (laughs) and not be done yet. But but let's just let's just get a look at some of these specific examples of where this has occurred. So as you mentioned, yes, unfortunately, there are cases that not only span the geography of the U.S., but also go across time. And so we were limited by word count, but (laughs) we wanted to go back as far as we could. Uh, And in this, in the longer version that I shared with you, we started with the Clinton administration and with Lonnie Guineer, who was a law professor, and how she came under attack for uh, articles that were published in well-respected places and various law reviews, where she simply talked about making sure that Black voters and others were able to exercise their rights under the uh, Voting Rights Act and was abandoned very quickly by President Clinton. Other examples included professors who were in the classroom, such as in in the case of Professor Gibney uh, out in uh, Minneapolis, where she simply made a statement in class that some of her white male students took offense to, and she found herself under scrutiny from uh, the administration. We also have the case of uh, Tommy Curry, 
who got into a bit of a controversy based upon a podcast that he did several years uh, ago. We have other instances like with Johnny Williams at Trinity College, where Johnny Williams was paraphrasing something that someone else said. And all of these responses have been met uh, by individuals outside of the university, inside of the university. And uh, many of these professors have found themselves uh, under attack. They've been in fights for their careers and for their very lives. Um, in the case of the Princeton professor, uh, Dr. Taylor, who gave a commencement address, uh, she made some comments about Donald Trump. And then from then on, she had to cancel um, invited speaking engagements because she was concerned for her new child and for her partner. Uh, so unfortunately, there is no shortage of examples of uh, faculty, black faculty in particular, that have been subjected to attacks from the uh, what we call virtual white mobs, as well as um, from their own uh, administrators. And one of the things that you talk about here, I just want to go back to it for a moment, is sure people being attacked, threatened for doing their jobs. You were hired to teach curriculum. Maybe curriculum is the wrong word, but, but that's what you're hired to do. And then having your livelihoods threatened. Having, having your careers and your very lives threatened. And you talk about this, that some of this in your article focuses on the social media aspect, because of course that can be one of the ways as educators we get our messages out. But that in some of these cases, this is their classrooms. Yeah, so unfortunately, many of the professors that I've mentioned and the ones that remain unknown to us at this time uh, have to deal with a host of issues and assaults from all different areas. So many people might experience receiving threatening emails to their campus email address. Uh, George Yancey had an op-ed piece, I believe, in the New York Times recently where he talked about the experiences that he has faced in his career as a professor. And of course, as we mentioned with social media, anyone could go and post anything on um, a blog. And oftentimes, the followers of those particular blogs and podcasts are like-minded. And so they kind of feed off of each other, uh, feed off on misinformation, and the problem just gets increasingly worse, which is why it's so important that those in positions of authority, those uh, administrators really take a stance in protection of their employees and protection of these black scholars, as opposed to oftentimes siding with their critics. You talked about academic freedom, this idea that those of us who do this work, a lot of it was appealing because of this idea of the marketplace of ideas. And, and that, that's really a great ideal, correct? I mean, just I, I remember my own college experience. I like that I felt like my mind was being sharpened with diverse viewpoints but as you point out, in many cases, that is just a farce today. I, I teach at a religious institution. And so I will often think about, I don't speak too terribly publicly about this, but I will often think about that, you know, at religious institutions, academic freedom can be limited, especially if you belong to a de denomination that is not the founding denomination that the institution where you teach but your article really opened my eyes because I do, I will say I was naive and uneducated because I just thought, well, those of you that teach at public institutions, you got it. 
<laughs> you got it. So, so can you correct me there? Because I, I know it's a fallacy, and your your article really woke me up to this um, point. Because you talk a little bit more about public institutions and how they're suffering from some of these same challenges related to academic freedom. Sure. So as with all freedoms in general, they're not absolute. And so we see that happening in higher education uh, as well. So while institutions may say that we're free to say whatever we want to say and to teach material in the way that we see fit based upon our uh, expertise, but that's not always the case. And so we're always, you know, thinking and considering, you know, how what we're saying or what we're writing might be uh, interpreted. And I, I'd like to ask um, Stephen to talk a little bit about having the talk. So we oftentimes talk about having, you know, parents when they have the talk with their children in contemporary times when it comes to race, we're oftentimes talking about interaction with police officers, but we're finding in higher education that more seasoned professors are having the talk with junior faculty, black faculty in particular, about ways to navigate uh, the system. Very quickly, the talk take t- takes two forms. Biko and I wrote an article together about four years ago that came out in 2015. And the article was an interpretation of state violence, uh, anti-black violence, such as police violence. And one of the things I said to Biko is, look, Biko, the reality is, Biko was a graduate student at the time. He's a brilliant professor now, but then he was still a graduate student. And so I wanted Biko to understand that there are some inherent risks in the kind of work that we do that interprets the culture, particularly where race is concerned. And so I actually had to have that talk with Biko saying that when we publish this and it's out there in the public, we don't know what the response might be from people who probably would not have even read the article. The, the second talk is one that I had with my mother because I wanted yeah. my mother to understand that, yes, I'm a professor, but given the kind of work that I do at the intersection of race and religion, that sometimes that puts me and others who do work on race in America in jeopardy. And I actually had to have that conversation with her because I wanted her to have a sense of the, the, the potential here for the, for the work that I do. And so like Lori said, these white virtual mobs spring up online from anywhere. All kinds of you know, social media sites, blogs, and all of a sudden you have people threatening your life. You brought up the issue of police shootings, and I'd just like to briefly share a story in my own teaching after Tamir Rice was killed. I was very upset because that was not the first name that I was aware of, and many of us were upset. And I went into the classroom, and I will not say it was my calmest moment as I shared some reflections on that. And the reason I bring it up is that a couple of years after that, I had a student, a white man who had been in that class, was in another class of mine, although it was much smaller, and we were doing that mid-semester feedback. Mm-hmm. And it was a class where we were talking about some really tough stuff. And I was really actually so, so pleased that we had an environment to do that. But I wanted to check in and see if they felt like they had been respected and heard. And it was really funny because he said, yeah, I feel like I've been heard. But boy, I'll tell you what, when you talked about that police shooting, I was so angry with you then. You know, and this is like, I, I'm glad it came out. But he was mm-hmm. so angry because I didn't also talk about what wonderful jobs police officers do that I didn't give the other side. And I wonder if one of you might share a little bit about how that same dynamic happens 
when there is this white mob mentality, instead of caring for, supporting, finding ways to lift up the courageous educators that have done this work, it becomes a, well, actually, we're going to turn it around and, and sort of this reverse racism argument. Could you talk a little bit about how that happens? And I know this is often with white administrators at predominantly white institutions. I think a couple of things. One, uh, you know, you, we have these conversations. And so the logic is similar between the, the student that you had and, and what we see happening in these statements from white administrators. One of the things I want to suggest here and one of the things we suggest in the article is, is that whether we're thinking about institutional heads like in white like uh, administrators or if we're thinking about agents of the state like police, what happens is, is that these institutions do what Lewis Gordon calls taking themselves or taking their ideals too seriously. And so what happens is, is that instead of saying, oh, there's a problem inherent to this institution, the reality is, is that people who are victimized on the other side of this, quite frankly, for being critical with these systems, are victimized by the very logic that they're fighting for, right? And so if we think about, for example, if, if safety and security and protection is one of, the, one of the sort of big things that the police are supposed to engage with, then what does it mean that this institution is enacting serious forms of violence by the state? And the state responds by saying, well, these folks are being courageous on the day-to-day -day basis. That completely erases, from my perspective, the reality, the empirical reality, that folks are getting killed behind your appeals to security and safety, that lives are being lost behind the very appeals to humanity, certainty, security, safety, stability, all these things, protection, um, lives are being lost behind these ideals. And the response often is, well, these are the ideals and we just carry them out imperfectly. That in and of itself is not enough. And what, what essentially happens when we're thinking about in terms of these uh, uh, university administrators is they, they hide behind ideals of, of human, equal human diversity and equality and human freedom. And they say, well, these comments that are made, these critical comments about race and racism in the United States that are made by these professors, well, they're not, they're not living up to the values of human equality and diversity. When in reality, the reason why we were hired, as we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, the reason why we were hired was to, was to come in to critique these violent systems of discrimination that are in actuality running counterintuitive to the very ideals that these institutional heads, these administrators, for example, or these institutional agencies, police officers profess to enact on a daily basis. So what we see happening ultimately is, is that, oh, human equality, human diversity becomes a, a space of equivocation, which means that, that if you're hired as a black professor or if you are a protester in the streets, you can only say so much before you come off as being a, per a perpetrator of certain kinds of, of problematic violences. When in reality, we are the ones who are in the first place having our lives put at risk, having our careers put at risk behind the supposed ideals. That, that these administrations and that these institutions say that they live up to. So black faculty, for example, are hired under a veneer of being critical thinkers, but they can only do that as in as much as it does not cause questions to the structures as they are. And as soon as they do that, these, these administrations, these institutions consume them and discard them and say, we did our job because now we're appealing to these more universal ideals of, of, of human equality, diversity, and freedom. So until we acknowledge that, any discussions about these purported democratic ideals do nothing more, do, do much more to harm the very people that they say they protect over and against actually advocating for the folks that are, are, are rendered most vulnerable in these situations.
when Lori brought up the talk, I, I thought that she was, it was going to be a different talk. <laughs> I, I thought that it was sort of going to be a talk on setting the stage for a class. And, and I, I was moved by Stephen just realizing, you know, that you got to have a talk with your family of the kind of risk that you're taking in these endeavors. And I wonder, though, there's this real tension between, you know, I think about myself as an educator and yeah. I'm more on fire than ever in terms of just the atrocities of this world and, and what I'm seeing. Yet, I don't know if the answer is to bring all my anger into the class, into the classroom. I, I, I struggle with that. I don't know. I wonder if you, if you have any thoughts about the talk that you have with your African-American students, and then I'd love to hear the talk that you might have with your white students. And what are your thoughts? What, what do you believe works in terms of creating that kind of change? And is that different for you as African-Americans than it might be for me as a white woman? I try to have very honest conversations with my students, right. many of whom are white students. In fact, in many of my classes, even though they're in both religious studies and African-American studies, half of them or more tend to be white students. But the reality is the reality. And so if I'm trying to make a difference in this world, then I'm not going to change that conversation based on the constitution of my classroom, that I want my white students, my Latino students, my African-American students, and so on, to understand that they have a responsibility here based on how we see this world, how we experience the world, how we understand it, to do something to try to make this a better world. And so I don't, I don't change the conversation. I just taught a class called Entitled Black Lives Matter and Religion this past semester. And I was, um, this, the class was split about 60, 40, black, white, probably about, well, probably about 55, 35, black, white, and then probably a little 10 to 20% South Asian folks and then uh, Latinx folks. And so we were having this conversation. And one of the things that I had, I had done in the classroom itself was make it very clear to all the students that you signed up for this class, uh, which means you signed up for a class that is going to engage in critical discussions about race that are going to be critical of white supremacy, going to be critical of whiteness, going to be critical of certain white actors, going to be critical of, of some of the, the frameworks that many of my white students were brought up in. And I think Stephen's right here. It's the, it, you're, as, a, as an educator, you have to have integrity when you stand before these students. And so what happens is, is that I, I don't mince my words. I try to be as compassionate as possible. But at the same time, I'm incredibly clear that this country that so many of us find as a space of, of, of security, safety, and home is torturous for many communities, particularly black ones. And so, so that's one way of doing it. The two, I have two different talks with my um, students. So my black students come to class and say, I'm the only black student in, in my all-white all chemistry class. And I'm disgusted with how every time I turn around, if the question of race comes up, I become a representative. And then my, my comments are easily and quickly discarded. Those conversations have a different tone to them. Those conversations are encouraging in nature. Hey, look, all I can say is I relate to you as being a black professor at an all-white institution that's doing very similar things as well. With my white students, the question is the conversations are different. They're saying, oh, I'm in your class and I'm afraid to speak. And my response to them is, look, like, you feel free to speak, but be okay with realizing that, that another student will disagree with you or could possibly disagree with you and be, and be reasonable in doing so. And remember, you signed up for this class, right? And it's not a, it, it, I'm, I'm not rude, I'm not mean, but at the time I say, look, I, as a professor, I'm going to, as the teacher, I'm going to make sure that you're not disrespected or denigrated. 
But if you say some off the wall stuff, be ready, right? Be ready for someone to critique that. So I think integrity and honesty on both sides uh, is absolutely necessary. And, and it's to demand to, to white students to, to not simply be uncomfortable, but recognize that you're going to be rendered vulnerable in a space like, like, this, like these kinds of spaces. The first thing I thought of when you asked this question, Bonnie, was that anger, you know, it's a human emotion. And you talked about teaching at a religious institution. And one of the things I'm reminded of is Jesus turning over tables in the church when people were (laughs) engaged in activities other than, you know, religious instruction and the like. So there's nothing wrong with being angry or feeling angry about various events that take place. And actually, you know, you turn on the television or walk outside, there's going to be something (laughs) that uh, may uh, cause you to uh, be angry. But something that I tell my Black female graduate students in particular, because they oftentimes have concerns about not wanting to be perceived as angry Black women Mm. in their presentations, and they're not really sure how to respond when they're confronted by uh, a white male student or some other uh, student in their class. And so my response to them is always, you know, if you're really angry, write, write about it. So (laughs) you can get a lot of publications or get a lot of thoughts out by writing it. And there are a lot of different audiences out there, a lot of different venues. We don't always have to shoot for the top tier journal. We can do an op-ed piece. You know, some people may have blogs or they may just feel like, you know, sending out a tweet or writing on their Facebook page. There's lots of ways that you can express your concerns and do it in a way that it can impact people so that they feel uh, empowered, that they might be mobilized so that they can go and make changes in their corner of the world. Um, So, you know, that's the message that uh, I give to graduate students, but I think it's also important too, and I think that Stephen and Bika uh, both alluded to this, is that from day one, you kind of set the standards as to what your expectations are for the class and the type of environment that you want to create, and then you don't have to worry as much about those issues, as long as people know that they're walking into a space where everyone is going to be respected even when they don't agree. This question of anger is something that is also racially tinged as well. And it strikes me that in these conversations that the primary affect of register for, for, for faculty of color, particularly black faculty, is always under, often understood in terms of anger. Well, well, we have to safeguard against what, what you know, Jesus might have understood as righteous indignation, right? He was pissed. And if we understand, we know the gospel's brood of vipers was not, that was his version of cussing, right? So he was politically, he was not operating under respectability politics. This racialized minority man, right, minority male, um, under, under the oppression of a regime is being angry and righteously indignant. And the truth of the matter is, when you see black, black professors, when you see black faculty, operating in that mode, even as they're teaching, that should not be denigrated or disrespected. That is a, a clear expression of a kind of care and, and, and not compassion, but care for the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, Deborah Thompson, a political science, scientist, says that black rage is our way of saying we actually care about the future of this collective world that we live in. This is why we're mad. And if we and if we if we didn't care, we would have moved on a long time ago. And so so there's a way in which this rage needs to be translated differently when we think about when we think about how it is erupting from black faculty members, from black students. And that this is not a cause for fear, but rather an invitation to sit down and ask, 
what what is it that is producing this right i mean this is what james baldwin tells us to be black and consciousness in america is to be in a relatively high state of rage all the time that's what it is right so don't get upset at us that we're mad because you keep killing us find a way to stop killing us <laughs> right? right don't don't pin don't pin that don't, don't pin that on us pin that on the institutions that are that are either lethal to our, our careers or lethal to our very existence that's where the energy needs to be enacted could you talk a little bit more about the administrator's response what it has been and maybe we can even transition then into what it ought to have been when situations like this come up, the classroom gets out, someone's offended, you know, there's not the chance to bring it back into the classroom, it gets, it goes public, it's in social media, it's blown up. The response from administrators has been paltry at best. And what it is for me is a spineless lack of courage. And I'd say this is embedded in the institution, incredibly vulnerable as an untenured faculty member. But the reality is, is that when faculty members are being honest, being critical, operating in the integrity of their disciplines, the responses have been, you know, poor at best. Well, you know, this is an instance of reverse racism. How do you say that when this country was built off the black backs of slaves? That's impossible. But but so so there's a there's a lack of accountability and and this meet this sort of waffling on questions of reverse racism, questions of equality, produce white virtual mobs, enable them to come out and, and attack these professors who are doing the job that they were hired to do. The response that I would like to see from administrators when these things occur, and, and just in general, is an institutional restructuring and an emphasis primarily on the humanities and social sciences to do the work that we were called to do in the first place. Yes, STEM makes money, but the humanities and the social sciences remind people that people exist. And, the, and, and we've lost that central, we've lost that central emphasis in the institutional infrastructure because now the money is in science, technology, mathematics, and engineering, right? That's one way to do it. The other way to do this is, is that for administrators to unequivocally say, no, my, the, the faculty member that I hired is doing the job that we hired them to do. That is what's happening. Anyone who comes against that particular faculty member for doing what we hired them to do, the institution is 100% behind them. So don't, don't, come for, don't come for the faculty members, right? So I think those are, moving forward, these are at least two ways to, to think through that. And I just want to emphasize what Lori started talking about when she was describing many of these cases. And, and one of the things that she was pointing out, and we point out in the article, is that many of these African-American faculty are punished for doing nothing wrong, even when the institution admits that what they wrote, what they said was factually correct. So I, so I just wanted to, to lay that out because I didn't want people to miss what Lori was, was describing here. We're not talking about people who are saying something radical or, or something that is not factually and descriptively correct. Uh, Dr. Finley came up, Stephen came up with the title for this article that we're talking about, Affirming Our Values, which comes directly from a quote from one of the uh, university uh, professors. So what it does, it points to this idea that many of these administrators try to set forth in their responses to these controversies that there are a certain set of values that the university holds dear and that these Black professors are not living up to those values, that they don't also share them, and that what's really happening is that you have the black professors are uh, actually pointing out that there's a gap between what the universities and colleges say that they value and what they actually do and where they put their uh, resources. So what we would like to see is for diversity and inclusion not to 
be just something that's on the website, that there's not just a plan that meets the requirements for whatever the credentialing agency is for that particular region, but that there's a sincere commitment to uh, actually embracing the work, um, the diversity of the work that the Black professors and other professors are doing, and a real commitment to diversity. Right. So a lot of these institutions think diversity is having a woman, having a person of color on faculty, but not structural change. Mm -hmm. These universities remain not just aesthetically white, but structurally white Mm -hmm. when they're supposed to be public and private universities that are universal. Mm -hmm. Right. In many ways, we'd like to see that happen, but that's not happening. And more concretely, if decrease the like eliminate the pay gap between white male faculty and and faculty of color and women. Excellent. I mean, this is this is this is a very brief structural thing. Allow for professors to to develop unions, right? Allow for us to have collective bargaining power. Create the create the possibility for us to not simply speak out in our classrooms, which is our many of for many of us spaces of refuge, but to speak out against the institution that is producing these inequities in the first place. And we look at numbers, the Chronicle pointed it out very clearly, black women faculty are getting paid ridiculously low compared to white male faculty in their fields, right? The gender gap is real. Uh, So so there's a way in which like, put your money where your mouth is. Don't place place us on on your promotional materials and don't pay us for the work that we do, right? Because the other part of this is too, is speaking about the talk. And I can, I know this from speaking to Lori and Steven, we have black students, white students, women students, students of color, marginalized students come to our offices, and those are hours of our days that are spent counseling, dealing with students who have concerns. We don't get paid for that, and we don't get recognized for it. We do it because we care and because we're, 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 we, we, we want, want to see change happen. But it comes at a cost. While we're, while we're dealing with our students, our respective white colleagues across the hall are writing their research projects, are getting moving closer to tenure and promotion. They're getting opportunities and time to do the work that we too would like to enact, but we're caught holding this with little to no compensation or recognition for it. So pay us more, create the possibility to recognize the kind of, not, the kind of intangible work that we do as faculty members with undergraduate and grad student populations. I believe it was the Chronicle that also had some data about, which you just alluded to, Biko, of the service aspect of our jobs. And people of color, women, still held to the same research standards, still yep. held to the same teaching excellence, which right. often, yep. as you have said, you know, is being good, behaving good, <laughs> you know, not getting it, you know, not making people too uncomfortable in the learning process, right? We're supposed to be learning, but not with getting uncomfortable. And then the right. last one is just the service. And black women were just off the charts. I mean, just looking, I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes. But I mean, it was just off the charts. And then as you say in your article too, for every single time it's a new student or orientation or uh, you know going out to try to recruit students or trying to look mm-hmm. like we're doing the work of a diverse institution but not the hard work just the you know poster child you know sort of work so it's really powerful thank you so much for sharing all of this with me and with the audience should we move over to to the recommendations portion or is any, anything else that we left out you want to make sure we say before we do well, I'll, I'll just say that we, we've already moved over into the recommendations. <laughs> I suppose you <laughs> that, have. That's some, of what, that's some of what we have been discussing. But I will add to that programs like African-American studies, women's and gender studies and the like are really important. 
to yeah. the world and to institutional life. And they're almost always understaffed and underfunded. Absolutely. We have to do something about that. Religion studies as well. Mm -hmm. These not empir these not empirical disciplines, religion, history, these disciplines, English as well. And as well as, as con contributing more to qualitative forms of sociological and anthropological in inquiry as well. The truth is not simply in the numbers, it's also in the complexity of human life itself. And so, so encouraging humanities and social sciences or incentivizing humanities and social sciences to engage in the complex messiness to, to do the work that they've been called or, or been hired to do, that's, that's another institutional addition too. Uh, don't simply hire the quantitative sociologists, hire the quantitative sociologists and the qualitative sociologists so that they both can, get, can, can, can come into this space and start to have conversations as well. And don't simply hire the, the religion scholar who's doing the, the, the Christian beat, but, but hire the scholar who's, who's asking questions about what does religion do in the world. Hire a scholar who's asking these complex, messy, theoretical questions that don't have clean answers and don't have uh, neat numerical data to back up their sources. This is the point in the show where we transition over to the recommendations. Stephen, do you have anything else you want to recommend or was that yours? <laughs> uh, I, I think recruitment and retention is, is vital. And so we've touched on a lot of things. I just want to register that one. Recruitment and retention of faculty of color, of women and so on. So it's, it's enough. It's not enough just to get them in the door. But given all the things we've described, committing the resources to ensuring that they can do the work that makes them successful. Lori, how about you? Do you have something you want to recommend? No, that's it for me. Okay. And Vico, how about you? I, I don't have too much else. I think, I think Finley actually hit the nail on the head with the, uh, the, the retention the dimension of this. The, I keep coming back to pay because class is an issue here as well. I mean, many faculty of color, many women faculty are coming from different class backgrounds that that they have student loans, they have these series of financial hurdles that don't make it easy for them to cultivate a living, to cultivate a life in order to do the work that they've been hired to do. And so retention includes like decreasing or, or at least being sensitive to the service that is happening, especially for people with dual appointed. But it also includes shelling out real hard dollars to make sure that people are compensated well enough to live a life where they're not breaking down and burnt out because they're having to, to worry about financial hurdles. This is, this is something that, that, that many universities don't think about. You know, university coaches get paid millions of dollars and, and faculty of color get paid pennies on the dollar. That, there's, there's, that, has, to, that has to change. That's how you retain faculty. Stephen and Lori and Biko, thank you so much for thank today's you. conversation and just for, for all the work that you do and, and just for your contribution to the community. Thank you. We appreciate that. Thanks to everyone for listening to today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to take a look at the show notes with a bunch of links to many of the resources that were mentioned by Lori, Stephen, and Biko, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash 214. And if you'd like to be receiving those messages in your inbox without having to remember to go up to the website and check every time, feel free to subscribe to our weekly update. It's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And you'll just get one email a week. It'll have the show notes in there with all the great links and also an article about teaching or productivity written by me. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.